Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason May. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at podcastinglight, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. On this episode, we have the one and only Laura Frank. Now, Laura has over 20 years' experience in the business. She started out as an automated lighting programmer and transitioned into handling media and screens. She's been on the forefront of most of the changing production technologies in both of those parts of the business for the majority of her career. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. I feel like my goal in my career is to find the interesting new thing and digest it and see what I can come up with. I like new toys. Awesome. Uh, You've worked in major events, film, television, corporate events, and theater, including programming one of my very favorite musicals of all time, Spamalot. That was a great experience, Spamalot. And I got to close the circle just a little bit a couple of years ago when I programmed, the, I think, the third national tour for Mike Belisari. And I have to say, I don't know if you had the same experience, the Holy Hand Grenade got me every single time. (laughs) <laughs> I there, never did not laugh. No, there's some incredible moments in that show. And um, and watching it grow from pre-production or off-Broadway production in Chicago, where we did our trial runs to New York. Um, oh, that explains why it was so tight. I saw it in previews. Yep. And it was so tight. A lot of months spent on that show. And then I had the good fortune of, of taking it to London, as well as Melbourne, Australia, and working on the first national tour, which actually wasn't a first national tour. We, we uh, parked it in Vegas for a while before it hit the road. So um, it was also the show because I was so familiar with it. I was able to um, learn the Grand MA1. I needed a show I was very familiar with to make that transition because it was such a change in uh, logic from the desks I was used to working on. And I was probably feeling a little stubborn about it, too. So uh, I have many things to thank Spamalot for. Awesome. So you you currently specialize in media management, programming, uh, media planning, and pre-visualization of media elements. Is that that basically correct? Yes. Can you sort of flesh out or describe this this sort of sector of the business that you work in? Yeah, I... I mean, certainly most people might call me and think that they're asking for a server programmer. I like to think of my role as more of a multi-screen workflow engineer. And, and what I mean to encompass with as few words as possible is that my approach to the programming has evolved beyond just the organization of content and playback to the screens. I try and attack the problem um, before the content is built by providing pre-visualization tools, working a lot in 3D so that I can engage with the producers and creatives on the visual result of all this um, moving imagery around the set and then work with the content designers because um, in that market, so many people spend their time looking at a 2D screen. I feel like what I can contribute is help them understand space. So I try and break that 2D experience of building content on their computer and allow them um, the experience of understanding what's going to happen when you apply that to a 3D form being the set and then compound that with looking at that set on camera, which is my typical working environment is in the television sphere. So ultimately, my goal is to grab this ball while it's super hot and in development so that by the time it reaches me, 
in um, show production that uh, it's as well organized and thought through as possible so that ultimately, if I've done my job correctly in pre-production, I'm just a glorified DVD player on site. I want my job to be a simple on site so that when um, we run into issues, I uh, I have the structure and the workflow in place so that I can resolve them as quickly as possible. I see. And it really is, as far as I can tell from my dabbling in media, that it's kind of a missing link, this, this sort of service you provide. I think so. I mean, my motivation to create the service is I wanted better delivery and better content and producers who understood what was coming to them before we were all working together. Um, I, I find the, the result is that when I get on site, I have pretty flawless content delivery. I'm sure that's a headache of many media programmers is misdelivered content, miscommunicated use of that content, and a bunch of people screaming when you're under the stress of production that, uh, you know, what is this? We got to change this. And I've been doing this a long time now. I don't want to stay up all night anymore. <laughs> I want it. There are too many tools out there where we can get this done right for the first time. And so I, I try and apply those principles because I want it's stressful enough on site. I don't need to add to that. It's especially the level at which you're working. Yeah. And there are tons of time constraints. So if I get on site five days before we're live on the air, I, I need to be as organized and prepared as possible. So I find what I do is organize the front end so that I can allow for the, for the craziness that happens in production and not feel overwhelmed by it. In fact, I've gotten to the point with some shows, and, and this is a horrible statement to make as a programmer, is I no longer program them. <laughs> I basically set myself up on handles. So I know I always have like my home looks accessible, and I can, in an emergency, use them at any time, and that I leave the image content for, say, the music performances a little bit random and loose because, you know, by the time we get to show, maybe I need a little more flexibility. Maybe we're going to live to air with a couple of unknowns. So I like to be able to program myself to manage those random accidents that end up being art in the moment. Well, so why don't we dive right in and why don't you tell me about a show and how you got from the beginning to the end where you're on camera and, and the show is going live. Okay. Let's use Black Girls Rock from this year. That was um, a show I did in the spring. Otis Howard was a lighting designer. He brought me in. The show had changed schedule and the person uh, sitting in, in my seat from the prior year had not been available. So I'm new to this production, but not new to a lot of the players involved. I know the producers, I know the director, and I know Otis. So I come in and the first thing I need is the set design. And Anne Brehek was the set designer. And I've worked with her a number of times and her art director, Aaron Black. He'll hand me a, a file in Vectorworks. And my current workflow is Vectorworks to Cinema 4D. And the first thing I'll do is probably spend a day cleaning up that file. For me, cleaning up that file is I need to eliminate all the information that Aaron put in there that's useful to him as far as the technical schematics of getting the set built, which makes a very dense 3D file. Uh, I need to thin it out to make it as efficient and shareable as possible. And my sharing tool right now is all WebGL based. So I need a lightweight 3D file that's going to display the screens in the simplest scenic 3D environment that I can create and still maintain all the useful information. So I might eliminate a lot of the rigging information. I might 
take the truss objects and uh, reduce the number of vertices and polygons in them so they just convey truss and not the details of where every truss connection needs to happen, which would have been in that original 3D file. So I need to simplify it because I want to port it to the web and make it shareable and easily usable. So that's about a day. And in that process, I'm also cleaning up the screens and starting to think about if I were a content designer, how would I want to imagine this space? What is the best translation of this 3D space into a 2D plane that I can convey and retain the interesting characteristics of way, the way the screens relate to each other? Because sometimes these screens overlap. Certain angles would imply a lot of depth that if I put too much depth in that flattened plane, it would make the master comp, I call it, too big. So, you know, there are two things happening. I'm thinking about it from the content creator's perspective, and then I'm starting to think about it of how I'm going to deliver the signal paths. So there's a creative workflow and an engineering workflow I have to think about. And this is all kind of evolving while I'm interacting with this model. So the first thing I like to build is this master comp of all the screens on on one plane. And I think for Black Girls Rock, I think it would be fair to say that was a probably a 5,000 pixel by 3,000 pixel comp. So they can be, you know, very demanding of computers and render time. So that's, that's treating the entire thing as one roster. Exactly. Thinking about that as one raster. But then knowing that that raster still needs to convey some kind of spatial awareness of how those screens relate to each other. But yes, you have to flatten it out for use. Certainly, I've I've worked with content teams that are very 3D savvy. And if they want to build their content in 3D, well, that Cinema 4D model is all the template I need to create for them. But for most teams, I want to create a 2D interpretation of that model. And then in that master comp, I'll create an After Effects template that does two things. It's going to generate the delivery files I want for my engineering workflow and playback workflow, but it's also going to give them like a two and a half D representation of the set, maybe from a couple of angles if it's really complex, so that they within After Effects can already start to get a sense of shape and dimension, how their content's going to map to this environment. I find that if I leave teams just with that flat master comp, it's not enough information. You don't get the sense of detail and scale that you would if you just start to see it on the model. So um, I've had success between Cinema 4D and After Effects um, with the Cineware plugin, where I can even give them a 3D model within After Effects, but it doesn't work for every application and it can be quite resource and processing intensive if it we're talking about a lot of pixels and a, a very complicated model. So I found the two and a half D approach works really well. And there are other peers of mine who use a similar approach, but I also texture map the Cinema 4D model with the delivery complement of materials. So at any point they can render out a section, move that to Cinema 4D and render out a, a previs tool of their own. The other tool I use is I port the model to WebGL. I use a couple of services, sketchfab.com and veril.com. Both of those tools allow me to give my clients the opportunity to experience the full 3D model in their web browser um, and have full camera preset control, orbit control of the model. So they can go in and visualize for themselves 
how this content's going to feel in the room based on the camera plot that I've been delivered. So um, with Veril.com, I can do video playback and also swap out the textures and set up camera presets. And then for a quick tool, if I want content approval on something, if I've taken, say, a screens producer role where I'm also supplying the creative, I'll paint stills onto a model as just a reference point for discussion, put that up on Sketchfab. It's a very easy process. And then that way I have everyone thinking about space and the visual implication of the video in that space together. And we can sit on a phone call or conference call and and be able to um, share what I consider a very information rich source. So I try and build all that about a month out from when I want content delivered to me on site. And then hopefully after answering some questions and maybe some initial conversation, I'm typically pretty hands off until maybe a week from getting on site. And then I'm starting to look at if it's a new content developer, I might ask for test deliveries, make sure we've understood each other. And then, you know, content delivery on site. That's before I've ever touched the console. If it's a playback system where I'm using a model in my playback, you know, I'll set up my D3 or Hippo or whatever um, server I'm using that show file to be prepared for the show. But I haven't touched or thought about programming yet. That all makes sense. Mm-hmm. So for, for Black Girls Rock specifically, uh, how long was the process and what role did you take specifically in that one? So on that one, I came in as um, kind of the content coordinator media programmer role. They show already had historically a relationship with a content designer who I worked with on the spec and the delivery process. And and so that was an unusual case because we had one supplier for all the content, both the host looks and the um, performance looks. And then on site, working with that um, design team to meet the goals of the producers and the directors. And an example like, uh, the Country Music Television Music Awards, which was this June where I play a screens producer role. I'm working with the in-house graphics team for CMT, working on the host looks, the generic looks. And then I worked with a number of content designers myself supplying all the looks for the performances. Now, a lot of bands these days are pretty savvy about video content. They spend a lot of money generating content for their tours. So part of what I do is also engage with their designers on how to deliver. So on any given show, I could be interacting with half a dozen content teams, maybe more. So having this structured workflow is really important because I know everyone's thinking about this in a similar way. And the result is still that I get good content delivery. I see. Have you had issues with bands uh, who have, say, a UXGA thing that they have and they're like, well, this is what we have. You have to use it as is. You have to figure out a way to use this. We're not going to re-render it in, in the in the format that you need. There's a couple of ways you can deal with that. I mean, certainly I can send them back a snapshot of that content map to the model and show them where the problems will be. I can also kick it up to my producers and say, how, how do you want to approach this? Are we going to appease the band, which often happens? Um, but I try and at least show them the result of that choice. And these previous tools allow me the, the option to do that. So if I can show them, say, I can show your piece of content mapped to this space, but I'm going to leave this part of the screen black, or I can enlarge it over multiple screens, but it's going to cut through faces or do something nasty that we wouldn't normally want. I think the hardest part to convey sometimes is that 
what works for live will fail on camera because it, it doesn't provide enough information for what the camera sees. And that can be there's a lot of negative space or all the energetic part of the content is up high, which really pays off in, in a tour production in a live space, but doesn't offer me anything in the lower part of the screen where the talent is and what the camera is going to see for 85% of the song. So we'll look at that. I'm thinking on a CMT Music Awards, in a good example of this, the EDM Act Zed performed, and they they prepared a 16 by 9 file for me, and there was nothing 16 by 9 on the set. Well, there was one screen, but it would, it would never be in a camera shot. So I sent out examples of how we were going to map this, and, and luckily working with them, and of course that content is going to be very active anyway, but we kind of worked together to paint the stage using that material. And then when they were on site, I could show them maybe some alternate choices that I thought would pay off better for camera. But I had enough flexibility that I could make some of those choices on site. Okay, that makes sense. So um, unlike the media creation and the management and the programming side of things, so you mentioned two different shows, uh, Black Girls Rock and CMT. How do the roles break down between you and designers and the technicians, you know, and, and give me a couple of different variations of how, of, you know, of how you slot in. Right. No, it, it absolutely changes every show. And if I'm new to a show, there's always a little bit of like political feeling out, like how much I take on, how much I don't. So I haven't talked about any engineering examples. Um, some of the shows I work on, the engineering team, you know, the video rental company, there might be someone on the staff who prepares their own signal rasters, how they want the content to look coming down the signal paths to them. So if I find that I'm in an environment with someone who's going to be very active in that role, I'll, I'll defer to whatever they want. All the servers now allow me the flexibility that whatever the content is, however that raster looks of the delivered content, I can rearrange it and spit out anything down the signal paths that I want. You know, I have a lot of flexibility now. It used to be even two years ago, I had to be very careful about content delivery and signal output and making sure that the delivered content in some ways resembled or was impacted by the signal flow. I feel those things are very divorced now. I can make those decisions on site and change them on site if something should change on the engineering side with the signal path. So that that has been a real creative release, I feel like, that I can confirm a workflow with the creatives and work out any engineering issues later. So do you mean that you can remap uh, content to different parts of the raster? Exactly, exactly. So if I have content delivered that's really determined by the shape of the set and is more visual driven, then I can remap on the signal path something that is more engineering specific. You know, it's very often if like I have a lot of LED columns, I'll want them on 32 pixel spacings, which may be completely irrelevant to visually how those columns lay out. So having that flexibility now just means that I can separate. I don't have to restrict my content designers to something that feels like an engineering layout. And that to me has been a very exciting development in the last couple of years that I use quite a lot. But I do need to work carefully with the engineering team for their best practices. They know their processing gear better than I do. 
they know the signal flow and the switching needs and the backup requirements much better than I do. So I'm going to defer to that team. And if they want to draw their signal path and, and what the signals need to look like, I'm happy to defer to them. Um, and I don't need that decision made right away anymore, um, which is kind of my point about the remapping tools. But if, if that person wants to hear from me what the signals look like, I, I'll dive into that too and at least, you know, lobby the first pitch and say, will this suit your processing needs and, and start that dialogue. So that, that's kind of a, a flexible role I have to play, see how much engineering hat I need to wear, how much creative hat some teams, some producers really engage well with the previous tools and, and some of them just want to work with the content designers themselves. And, and just t- have them exp- describe what to deliver, and then I'm, I'm hands-off. So the shows I know well, like I do a number of shows for Univision. Um, now I do their three major live events every year. We have a, a very easy working relationship because I know my seat well, and I'm predominantly programming and their content specification coordinator, but there's someone else on site who is more of the content coordinator wrangling all these different design teams together to make sure the content gets delivered. So I have a partner in the specification meeting the goals of of content delivery. But on other shows, I have to wear a little bit of that hat too. So it's hard to say what my role is. I know I've been hired by people who don't fully understand what my role is, but I know I'm going to at least try and fill all these needs until I engage with someone who's wearing part of that hat too. Um, screens is an evolving paradigm, wouldn't you say? I, I agree completely. So I think, you know, I, I was trying to think before this discussion, because um, we were talking about like, is it a lighting role? Is it a scenic role? And the only other team on the show that I feel like ends up having to deal with similar issues is, is almost the audio team, because whoever's engineering it, thinking about how files need to be delivered and that information workflow and in the hot seat on site. Because you look at the scenic design team, they're they're heavily involved in pre-production, making all these choices, but they're not on headset during production in the same way I am. And the lighting design team, there's only so much that can get done before they're on site dealing with everything. And in that environment, you have a designer, maybe an associate, programmers, production electrician, gaffer, you know, there's an evolved and very understood team. And I feel like in, in my world, ideally what I want is a screens producer role where I have someone working on show playback structure for me in that programmer role. I have my server engineer um, who's dealing with some of those engineering implications. And then I have my own kind of content associate who's helping me wrangle communication with all the design teams. That's, I think, a best case scenario, but I, I don't have that yet. I'm still working with producers. So when they spend $200,000 on LED screen for a TV show, I'm still working with producers to understand, okay, well, you now have 80% of your set covered in LED and it's black until we spend some money on making it look like something. Yeah. So if you've spent 200K on screens and you're saying I have a $20,000 content budget, I'm going to come back and say, well, your show's not going to look that unique. And you have a lot of real estate now that that needs attention. Hope you like stock content. Yeah, well, <laughs> that that's usually how I come back and say, okay, Artbeats are 
I stock, where do you want to go? Um, but it's a conversation I keep trying to move forward. People are beginning to understand and, you know, change this spreadsheet to include the different line items that are really becoming impactful. And my goal would be to have a team as well-defined instructored as the lighting team, or even in the truck, there's a whole team of playback engineers on the traditional broadcast side, well-defined roles. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm conscious that by absorbing too much responsibility, I'm eliminating my ability to evolve this role. At the same time, I respect that when I started down this process, let's say in the early 2000s, where maybe a third of my year would be server programming, the set maybe had, you know, one signal path and a bunch of low-res LED or, you know, 20% of the set had some kind of video stuff in it. Well, now it's, you know, some of my shows are like 80% screen and a floor (laughs) that's not screen and some parts of the set where the lighting can come through. Um, or maybe that, or maybe the floor is screen. Or maybe the floor is screen. So to take the people I've been working for for with for years and say, "All right, guys, now we got to talk about some real money," it, it's still a challenge. I understand that. It's you know it's strange. It, you know it it seems like it's all happened so quickly, but it's all happened very very gradually. Both things are true. Yes. And so, you know, so speaking of lighting, because there's still lighting, there is still going to be lighting, as as far as I can see. Yeah. Um, how do you interact with lighting? first question you know if uh how do you handle color temperature and you know issues with white point you know in that you know, sort of like white is going to be either 5600 degrees or 3200 degrees but mm-hmm. projection hardware is generally like 6500 degrees yeah and projector white comes up as nearly green blue yes that is a great question uh much harder to control in the live environment i have the benefit of a camera and all i have to do is paint white on those screens so it matches the the follow spot white relative to the camera and the camera is far more controllable than the human eye. I've seen stuff look beautiful on camera and you turn on white in the room and it's like 28 different kinds of white. It's <laughs> it's depressing, but I, I cheat. I have the cheat. I have the camera. I have to make those camera sensors see the same color temperature of white. And that, you know, we set aside time after the um, cameras have been chipped to the follow spots then it's our turn and we paint in the same color white all around. Um, I've been on projects that are live and, you know, we're trying to make projectors match LED and made myself nauseous in the process. <laughs> but, you know, my, my normal working sphere is luckily very forgiving when it comes to that particular issue. What is challenging, and I think the the hardest thing to answer about working with lighting is that now that I own so much of the visual real estate, it's typically been the case that the content choice, it's been designed, signed off on by a number of of producers. That's going to drive the color choices for lighting. Often my discussion with the lighting team is, or what screens can we turn off? How can we bring back some negative space and you know, still make this interesting for camera. So between color and negative space, that's what I'm communicating with most with the lighting department while we're in production. And you're also creating a lot of light. I'm creating a lot of light. So now that there's a lot of floor LED products, I'm always looking for how to make sure I'm the right level for the camera, but not contaminating faces. 
Luckily, I'm not in a situation where I'm contaminating faces often, but it happens. And so we find little tools and ways to protect our talent so that they look good. But yes, I'm creating a lot of light out there. And is there anything special that you have to do to, you know, because I mean, you know, I've seen where originally it would be there's a single screen with live camera that goes up to the single screen, maybe. But like, tell me about integrating live camera into the displays. Oh, so like bringing in a camera input and then having yeah. it back. Yeah, we we do that a lot. And sometimes we treat the camera with effects. Um Typically, if there's camera getting routed to the screens, uh, the first choice is to employ another switcher because you have latency issues and you want to protect the signal pathway of camera to screen. So often there's going to be something like an Encore or Spider in line. Um, But that's not something every production can afford or we have the time to pull off. So there are a number of times where I will bring those cameras into my server. Some of the servers I work with have very low latency. So I can get that camera to screen with minimal delay. Making the image, one of the biggest challenges being then on camera is making sure that the camera shot of say a host and how that's colored appears the same way on the screen, and then if the camera sees that on the screen, that it's all the same coloration. I find that one of the biggest challenges. That I, I was going to ask you about that. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah, so the broadcast signal has been color-treated to look right. I'm taking the result of that color treatment back into the system and putting it on screens that have been color-corrected. And then if the camera pans up and looks at that result... Sometimes the colors are completely off. Yes, smarter engineering minds who who know those issues and understand them, I, I invite them to come play because it can be very tricky. Sometimes tricky to the point that we've had to color a camera specifically to read the result of that camera pip or whatever we're doing on the screen so that it looks right. I have a rule now, actually, that if I have a presenter in front of a screen if I am then doing a picture-in-picture picture iMag of that presenter in the same screen, I don't do that show. <laughs> like, okay. it, yeah, it's pretty brutal. I either want it to be on a side, kind of separate screen. I don't want to see it that the iMag in the shot of the presenter at the same time. It's, it just breaks hearts. Oh, I, I, I totally understand. It, it, it's definitely confusing to me how, with these shows, of, with, with any show, really, but it's especially ones of this size, you know, how it can seem that people haven't thought that hard about what's behind the camera shots. Yes. Again, previs. And I mean, how many times have you been on a show where the result is like, okay, I can't put a host there. I've got this weird content or scenic piece sticking out of their head. And I'm like, that could have been experienced before you ever built the thing, whether it was previs or I don't know what, but you know. Well, I mean, in a lot of cases, I mean, it's, especially if it's just, you know, something simpler than that, that it's a camera plot you know, and drawing lines, you know, what's the width yeah. of the camera shot? How wide are you shooting? What is the, what's that, what else is going to be in the shot? Like, I can't believe that you guys didn't think about this. No, it's become a professional goal of mine to never hear someone say the phrase, I had no idea it was going to look like that. I never want to hear that. I understand, but it's, it's, it's not on you. But I, I have tools that can help that. And so I kind of taken the approach, the drug dealer approach. I've been giving a lot of these tools away because I, 
experience them as incredibly valuable, incredibly information rich. And I figure once I hook people into that concept that people will want those tools and we will move this paradigm forward of, of you know, what lighting previs did 10 years ago. I, I think we're ready for that next stage of evolution. I don't know if you've ever looked at film previs, how intensely they previs, especially action movies. They practically animate the whole thing now, including the camera moves, and just like plot in the live action footage later. I'll tell you, I had no idea until I actually worked on a feature this past month. And it's a pretty big feature that's going to come out next year. And I could not believe how much previs they did and and the stuff they could show us what, Mm -hmm. you know, what they were planning to do. Yeah. When did that start? I mean, I mean, I know you programmed on School of Rock and a couple of other films. Was that something that they were doing even 10, 15 years ago? Not at all. Not at all. I don't know when it really started or how it evolved, but I know they started... I just got back from SIGGRAPH. Uh, what? I'm sorry, what is, what is that? SIGGRAPH is a computer graphics conference. I think it's been going on for 40 years. And I think I became aware of how much previs there was a couple of weeks ago looking at this because SIGGRAPH is, while an academic conference, also very um, focused on the visual effects industry as well as the gaming industry. So you see a lot of the tool sets those worlds are using for their production work. Um, and they were showing examples of like the, the previs fleshing out the wireframe and then with the live action content and just looking at the previs, I mean, it was just kind of gray matte schematic of the animated characters, say for like the Avengers, but it was great te- detail of like the physical actor movement and of course the camera movement. And it was just impressively flawless like how much detail there was in this previs and we went to one session about ILM and what they've been doing over the years and they have this new uh, group called XLab which is their kind of augmented and virtual reality shop and they're doing previs to the point now that they have their directors coming into a room where they're projecting on two walls in the floor and the director puts on some some polarized glasses with some tracking dots so they can track the director's head. And and then they have a little hand tool where they can pick up scenic elements and move them around in space. And they have a mocap uh, motion capture section with an actor maybe acting out one of the, maybe it's a dinosaur for Jurassic Park or one of the other ILM properties they work on. And so the director will be interacting with that animated character that's being animated in real time and rearranging the set and the camera shots. And I'm thinking, I just need like 5% of those tools. <laughs> just 5%. Now, I'm comparing a very structured paradigm. Film is like tightly detailed. And what's wonderful about live television is, you know, we rehearse, we plan, but it is very live. And very random in places and we have a structure but we also have just a lot of like what can we do in eight days with 12 cameras go so it doesn't always pay off in that world but i feel like it can inform what we're trying to accomplish to better results on the previs sort of side of things how did you develop this sort of package of skills that you have to do this and what's the technology that makes it work so at the beginning of this conversation, I was talking about how I like new toys. I, uh, there are a lot of new toys in 3D. So when I started programming, I mean, really, I think I started thinking about media server programming 
when the Icon M started being talked about with light and sound design when they were developing that product. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I can program the light, but what's coming out of that light is graphics. And I don't know anything about graphics. So it was about 2001 and I gave myself, I think six or eight weeks to just sit down and teach myself After Effects and Photoshop. I thought those were going to be the tools I would need to be successful with products like the Icon M coming out. Well, I mean, with the Icon M being still images only, that was absolutely true. Yeah, and hopefully that it would, I think they could do video, or at least the idea of a projector and a moving head. You know, Catalyst wasn't, you know, Catalyst with the mirror component on a projector wasn't far behind discussions of the Icon M. So I knew I had to be able to think about video, but first Photoshop. And for some reason, I also thought I needed to learn enough HTML to make a website. So I did those three things in two months. And I'm not saying I did them well, but I did the Adobe Classroom in a book. And anyone listening, I I really recommend those products. If you're trying to think about how to tackle this learning curve, and for me, it's been years of a learning curve. Sitting down with a book, lynda.com, there's so many great tutorials. I mean, you could pretty much type any combination of how do I do this with this in Google and find somebody with a video tutorial online. In fact, before we started this conversation, I was searching for tutorials on Unity 3D and the Siphon plugin so I could look at an After Effects output through Siphon on a model in Unity because I think that's where things are going. Okay. So, yeah, I so I'm constantly like using these tutorials, but in 2001 it was those three tools, Photoshop, After Effects, and HTML. And then trying to use those tools and knocking around in After Effects and learning how to, you know, at that point, what, I maybe needed 200 by 200 pixels worth of eye candy to make something interesting on stage happen because everything was solo res or it was the era of the VersaTube. Yeah. You know, it didn't take much. And I, I can produce those files pretty easily. And as things evolved and the amount of content enlarged, And the dependence on me for explaining delivery became more critical. That's when I started thinking about 3D because I wanted to enrich the content developers experience because I was dealing with a lot of people who didn't understand space. And I wanted to have a better understanding of, of the space myself and, you know, how to think about the file structure I wanted, how I wanted those assets to come to me. So, but that that's 10 years we're talking about. I didn't sit down and start teaching myself Cinema 4D until 2011. So those first set of tools lasted me a good 10 years. But as far as a content management process, thinking about that, um, that I think really had its roots in um, Shrek the Musical. I produced a lot of the content that went on that stage. We had one projector. Yeah. But I still was looking for tools because my role, like, you know, I, I, I didn't come in as a projection designer. I came in as part of the lighting department. I took input from scenery and the director directly. So I was looking for a way to find a place where I could share ideas that I was working on and get feedback. And, and so I went to the web because that was the most natural place to post something visual and have a, a quick response that could be documented and we could engage in a conversation. It kind of broke this idea of like email chains or sharing PDFs back and forth. I felt like 
building out a content discussion environment on the web was the way to go. And that kind of evolved. I've turned off the discussion part at this point because now mostly it's about content management and I just document everything and put it on the web because I feel like that is where we communicate now. And that's something that you constructed for your purposes and for your clients' purposes. Yep. And, and it's WordPress. I have a pretty standard structure that I follow now. And the piece that I'm trying to add and have had some success in getting clients to hire me for this is to evolve that conversation in my mind to the next step, which is web-based previs. And those are the tools I was talking about earlier, using WebGL as a visualization tool so that I had a project last December where the content developer was in Korea, the production company was Seattle, and we are sharing information and content, and I'm producing the result and sharing it online for everyone's review and discussion. Now, that's something that I wasn't even aware existed, um, you know, because rendering and pre-visualization, you know, in my mind, is always been something that takes place on a computer, and then you look at that computer. Or you can render that into a video file, and then you can post that video file. Not, not, that's not, not something that you can do in real time online. Yeah. Was it a tool that you developed? Um, it was a tool I started looking into. WebGL is a graphic standard for putting 3D objects on the web. It is always supported video playback. But now there are a couple of companies out there that are hosting these 3D files as as like a YouTube of 3D objects. And so I, I approached both companies, a couple of companies that I found about the specific way I wanted to use the tool and why it was different than baking kind of a, a camera experience of content on the set. Because, you know, I was thinking about it from the perspective of, say, my director. I give them this tool. I'm going to put their preset cameras in there and let them punch through their cameras at certain angles I've defined that they can change on the fly in the web browser. And then I haven't locked them into my presentation. When you're talking about real time on the web, of course, I'm not going to give you this glossy, you know, realistic presentation. But I think over the next few years, the things you're going to hear people talking about is not only having this be web-based, but real-time rendering tools. And that something that would have been 10 gigabytes of a rendered file delivery, I can include in this web delivery environment. And it only takes up maybe 128K worth of information and it's generative content playing back on the set in real time. And, and WebGL supports all that. I think you're going to start see servers supporting that. Um, so between the, the web and the real-time rendering, I think this is where my industry starts converging with the tools that have been happening in the gaming industry for a lot of years. Some of the stuff that you're, that you're talking about here, it's stuff that I really wasn't aware of. And you know, I wonder if some of the listeners weren't aware of either. It's really, really exciting. Can we go back for just a moment? Yes. We talked a little bit about the live TV environment. I'd like to talk a little bit about how those shows work and how you structure your queuing and playback for them. Because you said that you have a lot of things that you can do on the fly. Yes. But yet I imagine you also have a lot of stuff that's constructed in a linear way because you know that segments are going to go a certain way. We hope they go a certain way, yes. <laughs> I can talk you through a typical show structure, even shows that I don't know well, like kind of how I approach maybe, let's say I'm coming into a new show, what I expect to see there. Yeah, absolutely. 
So um, I'm going to be working on uh, the VMA uh, MTV Video Music Awards outdoor stage coming up. Uh, Jason Rudolph's going to be inside on the main stage. And I, I, I did my first VMAs in, I think, 1994 as a Verilite tech. And so here I am now outside on the stage. And there's certain things that I can expect about how this production goes. I know there's going to be a host on the outdoor stage and some kind of host look. That would be my expectation. Or the indoor show is going to throw to us and we're just going to be the performance. So I can expect that there's some kind of branded look of the show that is going to be a look I always need to be able to grab at any instant. I consider it my kind of escape or safety look. And then I'm going to have several performance looks. And we're doing more performances than what will be broadcast so that I think about that and the expectation is, all right, the broadcast tracks are going to be the priority. Those need to look the best. And there are content designers either that the show is hired or the band is hired that I'm going to be communicating with about how I want files delivered. And we're going to talk about, um, since these music performances, these bands will typically need some kind of backing track, the likelihood that there will be time code available so I can sync video content is, is a possibility. So I need to be prepared for that. So those are my expectations. I have a show look, I have band looks and some of those band looks might be a little like rough together with some stock content because they're less of a priority being non-broadcast. I'm not going to know the songs as well as say someone who tours with the act. So I find I, I like to set up lighting style busking handles with video so that I can, you know, kind of interpret and feel the song live. So that's going to be a little bit random for me. I'll be more structured about the uh, broadcast songs, but that that's not always true for me. There are a number of Univision shows that I just leave myself verse, chorus, bridge, intro handles and, and just mix depending on maybe the camera shot. You know, if there's a moment that the camera shot looks a little dry. I might crossfade into something that feels a little stronger based on what I'm looking at live. So I, I like to leave myself pretty flexible with the music unless it's a time code driven track. So I typically build my playback environment so that my highest priority layers are that host look. So I can get there no matter what I'm driving underneath it. And then because my content delivery is so structured, I can easily rely on same layer crossfade for the servers that offer it. So, you know, if I'm doing something random, crossfading between looks, I have a lot of flexibility there because I know I can get between looks very cleanly. Thank you, Unbox. Yes, thank you, Unbox. Thank you, D3. So I, I allow myself, because I feel confident about the structure of what I'm looking at, a lot of flexibility in my playback. That is not true of how I might set up a show 10 years ago, I would probably have a very strict cue structure. But like we were pointing out earlier about color temperature, cameras are pretty forgiving. So I just let what's happening in that camera guide me. And that if it's something so structured that I need to hit like a particular burst on a, you know, a music event, I'll rely on time code, even if it means queuing to time code rather than having a fully crafted video that needs to sync to time code. And so that's for television. Yeah. But you also do content assembly for concert touring, right? Yeah, I haven't um, been able to work on a concert tour in a while, unfortunately. But so many of the shows that my peers work on are heavily time-coded at this point. 
Oh, yeah, there's a backing track, right? It's, you know, like you have, you have SMPTE or MIDI coming in and the, the console is just smash and go. And the servers, are, the servers are like, I don't care what the console is telling me. I'm going to just start playing this content until someone opens the gate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you can okay. see this content. So the servers yeah. themselves are receiving time code instructions. Absolutely. I see. Absolutely. That's so that you get full sync capabilities so that they can, if they're in rehearsal and they want to pick up in the middle of the track. I do this for theater too now when applicable. Um, uh, yeah, I, I always have the servers chase time code. That makes sense. So I have another question for you about media, and then would you mind talking about lighting for a minute? Sure. Okay. So, so sort of what is the current state of the art? Yeah, that's, that's a thick question, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, and the first thing you said that I'm excited about is, is the fact that I can get a 10 gigabit network to my servers on if I'm using a D3. And I, I don't know if the Hippo V4 has 10 gigabit. I'm sure it does, and I should probably know that. But... Um, I mean, that's one of the most exciting um, offerings of the last year that I have because I can move content around so quickly around the system. And, and that's such a simple thing. I mean, no one creatively uh, gets a thrill out of a 10 gigabit network, but I just know I've, I've improved my workflow by a factor of 10. Um, and then things I'm excited about in, in the, you know, in my domain, I think the ease of, of projector calibration that have been built into a lot of the server tool sets that we use. Um, I've, I've been on shows where we've had to calibrate projectors on commercial breaks because the set didn't exist or you know hadn't been on stage except for two days prior during rehearsal. So you know we've got a three minute window to recalibrate or just touch up projectors before we're live on the air. Yeah. That wasn't possible a few years ago. That's for sure. And I mean, the Super Bowl is a great example of that. I think there were 80-something projectors that they had to correct while they were building the halftime show in that seven-minute window. Or maybe it's longer now. The year I did it, I think we had eight minutes from end of the first half to go on the show. I think they get longer now. I'm excited about generative content and having content impacted by the performance as it's happening. I'm also fascinated by ways that exposes that happening to the audience. I find some of the stuff we do when it's successful, people don't understand how technically challenging it is. And I think if you expose just the tiniest flaw sometimes and you give the audience or the viewer a sense that this is hard, it actually makes it that much more exciting. For example? For example, in Shrek, we had an actor off stage with tracking dots and a, and a mocap setup. 20 cameras watching these dots where we were generating the magic mirror in real time. Wait, really? Yeah. Did you see Shrek? I didn't. I'm sorry. The magic mirror was generated in real time by an actor and a mocap rig. That's ballsy. Yes. Um, but in practice, it didn't feel any different to the audience than prepackaged video. It could have been an actor talking to rendered video clips. We had intended to have the magic mirror on stage during intermission interacting with the audience. And that was going to be our way of exposing to the audience that it was really happening. But for what, you know, a number of reasons, we didn't end up going down that route. So my suggestion had been like, you know, put a little glitch in the video somewhere and then people might get it. We, that, I don't think that happened, but <laughs> it was amazing technology. Uh, Data-rich content. 
I would really love a project, and I've done something like this, and I would like to see more, where we're pulling information either out of the room by the people who are, you know, about the people who are in there, or something web-based where we're collecting data that's somehow informing, you know, what what we're creating, and it could be information like lightning strikes or the birthdays of everyone in the room, or however you collect that information. I I like my husband's in that industry of of web-based data collection, and and we always joke that we're going to be in the same business one day. It sounds like it's possible currently, and it's just sort of almost a matter of just figuring out what to do with it. Yeah, uh, the project I did work on that I thought was just really amazing was um, a project for Nike where, of course, to to get into the room, you kind of sign up and you're already sharing a bunch of information about yourself. And we had a 40-yard dash built with um, and on one side of the 40-yard dash was an, a five-mil wall where you could race the highest time of the day in a virtual character who ran next to you. And um, we had one of those, like, Olympic rail cameras that chased you down the track as you ran. Um, and then we could, you know, play back the video of you running on the screen um, against this animated runner next to you. And... Um, to get on onto the field to do this race, you had a little QR code, and as soon as you got scanned, a web page was generated that was going to contain this video of you running and a couple of shots of you running. But at the same time, we had your name, your run time, some statistics about you, and we were generating a web page to you know the video format that I defined so that we could have a ticker running across this LED wall at all times of race times, as well as being able to display like run times of the day in, in a format that we crafted to be the same resolutions and sizes that we needed for the space because it was a non-traditional format size. So things like that I find engaging or using that data to create art, I think would be engaging. Earlier, you mentioned that you had been with Verilite. And uh, yes. uh, and it's, it looks like you were at Verilite at a really interesting time in Verilite's history. How did you get involved with them and what was going on there and what were you doing there? One of my first jobs when I got to New York was with Bobby Harrell as a lighting designer. And he had the good graces of having grown up in Dallas and knowing some people at Shoco. And I think that's how I got my foot in the door because I interviewed down there and the New York shop um, had just opened the Verilite because Verilite had been housed at Vanco and then opened their own shop. And I think that was one of the first freelancers that they hired. There had been some techs they used and, and had trained at Vanco, but I interviewed at the New York office. I wasn't, I was not aware of the Vanco Verilite connection. Yes. Early days. This would have been 92 or so. I, I interviewed around 93, 94, maybe. So they, they trained me to be one of their like local freelancers. And I went down to Dallas and luckily they trained me as not only a tech, but they gave me a week of artisan training. And I had been in New York for about a year at that point. And kind of my approach to New York and, and being a stagehand was like jack of all trades, expert in none. I, I was just going to try anything. And, and, you know, I was predominantly electrician, but I did some rigging. I did some bad carpentry. I, I unfortunately did some audio too. I wasn't really good at that. So I stuck with electrics, but it, I mean, I knew I enjoyed consoles, but I think 
that artisan training was really kind of the game changer for me with knowing that I wanted to focus on that. But I really enjoyed being a Verilite tech too. And, and I trained in 94, which was when the VL5 came out. There were certainly some big shows of Verilite going on at that point. I, I joined after they had done their kind of record-breaking 500 fixture show in, in Dallas. I think um, that was an Alan Branton, Harry Sangmeister show. Mm-hmm. I broke the first VL5, I think, according to lore. <laughs> the back, back cap one of, that's part of the heat sink. I yeah. was the first person to break that. <laughs> doing what? Doing what? Yeah. Walking away from a unit on my repair desk and it, the, the arm kind of tumped over and pulled the light off the desk and fell on the floor and cracked it. Yeah, that was me. Wow. All right. <laughs> so I made an impression and somehow they kept hiring me. <laughs> but yeah, I had some good times as a tech. And then working in New York, doing work on Broadway, working around town a lot and making relationships at Madison Square Garden and Radio City, um, you know, becoming a member of the IOTC stagehand union had become important to me too. And I think, yeah, I think I got my card in 99, which was, I was very fortunate. And, and then I founded my company, Luminous Effects, either 2000 or 2001. And that's because at that point, I had parted ways as being strictly Verilite freelancer went out on my own and was doing a combination of production electrician and programming work or kind of moving light production electrician. Yeah. And then committed myself to programming only probably late nineties. That really happened. I committed myself to programming only and then, and then started thinking about media early two thousands. And uh, one other question I have to ask you about that time period, I know you mentioned uh, Project uh, Medusa and Icon M. Mm-hmm. Did you work with the Icon Desk? I, yes, I loved the Icon Desk. Here's my question. There are people who work with the Icon Desk who tell me that it was the greatest desk of them all. And I'd like to know what made it special, because I've only seen photos of them, and of course now I have no way of ever working with one. Did you ever see an artisan? Yes. So it was like working on an artisan, but all the six panels you could rearrange to your liking. So there was this incredible user flexibility. There was also this really fabulous playback structure. So like, say I was building a show to tour. It was like, it was like building cues as if they were Macintosh folders. I see. So there was this button array that I could say, okay, it's this song and I punch that button and it gives me all of the looks for that song, you know? And, and that, and so I could punch say the verse button and it would load up all my faders with those cues and whatever state I wanted. So some of them might be playing some of them. It, it's actually based on the Macintosh hypercard stack, if I remember that correctly, but it just allowed for a playback logic that was so kind of like comfortable and fluid and easily shared with someone else. If you had to hand off the show for a tour, I see. So I could say, here's your song. Here's the song breakdown structure. When you hit the verse button, you know, the look comes on stage and here are your like hits and your effects buttons that you can layer on top of it. It was also the first console I worked on that had the concept of a library queue. So let's say you had some generic cue that you had to write a lot. It, it's like 
using a palette to be all your parameters before you could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you were restricted. There wasn't an all palette feature. It was either focus information, beam information, color information. So before you could have an all palette, Icon had a library queue, which was kind of like an all palette so that you could store an entire queue as this library element and then take from it and augment it to be like a, a generic C look or generic D look um, with these slight variations. And it would f- refer back to this library queue. I see. And those buttons, the buttons alone were just like the perfect response. I, I mean, I can hear the sound of the icon buttons describing it. It, it was just a very satisfying <laughs> tool. Drew Finley and Keely Noble trained me on that desk, which which is really great when you think about you know where they are in their careers now. Where is that? Drew is a screens producer and a tour. Um, I mean, he's a peer of mine. He's out there working a lot for Jay Z and is a screens producer on on TV shows and and doing content development. And Keely is on she's on one of the L A nighttime talk shows. But she toured forever with Pearl Jam, great lighting designer, and an incredible programmer. Okay. So uh, as, a, as an automated lighting programmer, but sort of before the transition, what were, you, what were some mm-hmm. of your favorite or memorable shows uh, that you did? Tom Kenny hooked me up with David Bowie, 99, 2000. And David Bowie was the, the curator of Glastonbury that year, or the headliner of Glastonbury that year. And I will never forget, because I didn't do a lot of touring, so I didn't have this experience often, but Glastonbury is a really big event. And the first time I was up on a lighting tower and I hit the audience blinders, this has nothing to do with programming or lighting design at all, actually, (laughs) but I hit the audience blinders and it must have been, what, 40,000, 50,000 people just like erupting in a roar. I knew I was never going to be able to have a normal job. You know, right you, you say that like it's not part of this, but you you clearly didn't listen to the Mike Baldessari episode where he talks about going to see Kiss. And before he knew what lighting was, that you know, he said somebody hit a button, the blinders came on, and 20,000 people <laughs> cheered and was like, I want to be the guy that hits that button. Well, I just, I proved his point then. <laughs> that this is more... I hit the button yes. and it was like drugs. Yeah. It was like drugs. It's, it's, more, it's more true for more of us than you think. And so you got, and you got to do it with David Bowie at Glastonbury. Yeah, yeah. Was there any, any anything else sort of notable about that, other than just the size of the project and the and the, and the <laughs> importance of the project? Yeah, I think it was just about scale and being a little bit new to that environment. And I mean, Tom had brought me in because David was doing a lot of television appearances and knew I I could take care of David looking right on camera. And as part of that were some of these festival events. And certainly I had the lighting chops and, and could manage that. And, you you know, at a festival, you come in the night before, you stay up late, make sure your songs look like the show you want to put on. But I, I just, I, it was unfamiliar to me. So that particular application of the skill set I had was, um, you know, I was a little green to the environment. So everything was just exciting and, and new and and on the scale of Bowie being around him and, and how that works. So those were exciting times and really valuable. Okay. Because uh, that, that relationship evolved into working on his 2004 um, uh, a reality tour where I was the, the content coordinator for that. 
And, you know, I, I feel like at that point, I felt like I could really establish myself in this role of focusing on media and committing to that full time and, and was able to do so. Uh, you know, something you mentioned on your website is that a really good way to learn how consoles think and how fixtures work is to just get like a two scene preset board or a conventional console and just and just connect it to a moving light and see what happens as you change the values. Yeah. If you understand the nature of the problem you're trying to solve at its most basic level of detail, I think when you're staring at something like the Grand MA2 and trying to figure out what button do I push first, that's how you unfold that problem in my mind. That makes a lot of sense. Do, do you think there's any danger in the amount of abstraction consoles are trying to get us to, to work with? No, I, I think the tool set is immeasurably helpful. You, you need that for the amount of information you're talking about managing. Understanding why you're managing and how that information works, the console is not the tool to expose that to a new learner. I see. So a new learner is going to maybe find the effects engine and just rely on this thing that makes the levels wiggle and not maybe fully understand the relationship of the math to the physical application of what's happening. And that's why I like the idea of like understand the mechanics and then that will expose why this big desk is so powerful. I was actually talking to my husband about this last night because he was describing explaining what tagging on a website was. And he's like, well, actually, let me explain where it came from. And he, because he was trying to explain tagging on the website he works on to some marketing people and, and they weren't quite getting it or data, data, data governance team. And so he's like, well, let me start from the beginning. And I had an experience after going to this computer graphics conference and learning about, you know, like high-end GPU processing. Um, and... I found this video online that explained how computer graphics worked on a 1985 computer with a 300 by 240 pixel screen. And I was like, oh my God, I should have watched this video before I went to SIGGRAPH. This would have made so much more sense. Because if you understand what problems were trying to be solved when the problems were new, when you evolve this problem over 20, 30, 40 years of development, You've abstracted the original problem so much that I think it becomes monumental to learn these tool sets. So, yeah, I say start simple and and allow that to evolve. And I think it will inform your use of a tool like the Grand MA that much better. That totally makes sense. Uh, speaking of new users and people entering the business or entering one of these segments, do you have any advice about what to do early on in a career or when you're trying to learn something new? Yeah, I think for lighting, definitely you want to put yourself in an, an environment where you expose yourself to any opportunity to get behind the desk. No project is too small. And in fact, sometimes starting small is the best way to adapt how you want to think about the logic of this tool set for yourself. So I find I engage with people who have come out of working in shops really well because they've had a lot of opportunities with downtime to just sit at the console and play and give themselves challenges. 
When it comes to media, I think the whole industry is going to move towards 3D applications. So having an awareness and understanding of 3D tools is critical. Being able to communicate in the language of imagery and the tool sets people use to create that imagery is important. And, you know, to be respectful of those people dependent on you to get the signal to the screen on the engineering side. Those are your partners. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I really benefit for spending a lot of years crewing, being an electrician, climbing trusses. Many of my peers have never owned a sea wrench, and I think that's a terrible thing. <laughs> I want to know they've climbed 60 feet in the air and swapped out the heaviest automated light made. Because I respect that. I think that it makes you a good collaborator for every department that you interact with. Uh, you know, there's there's no substitute for seeing how all the parts fit together in real life. Um, you know, there there's a great blog post floating around online somewhere about why theater education serves you in any industry you end up in, and it, and it's a lot about collaboration, compromising, and being a good team player in the sandbox. What we do is a small piece of this big puzzle. And a lot of people are trying to get to the same goal line and we have to do it together. And that means engaging, communicating well, and understanding that it's a collaborative process. I think we're winding down here. Um, okay. Do you have any final, do you have any thoughts, anything that you want to mention before we start wrapping up? Oh, the only thing I wanted to say is, is when I built my first website, I couldn't remember which year I... Um, I built it in and I went to webarchive.org. The Wayback Machine. To find, yes, to confirm what year it was. I just wanted to point out that's how I knew it was 2001. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, the Wayback Machine is awesome. Uh, you know, I, I have found, you know, so you're working with a product that's been discontinued for years. And of course, yeah. no one has that thing, that information posted anymore, or the companies, or the companies that are business. But the Wayback Machine still has that information. Yep. You know, if you need information about a product that was manufactured in, you know, 2003 and the company, you know, tanked in 2007. You can get it. So that, that's a great resource that probably people don't think about very much. I don't know. Is there any technology you're particularly excited about that might prompt me for um, oh, I don't know. I, other insight? You, you do the cool stuff. I, I just program lights. <laughs> the, you know, uh, I've, I, I personally, you know, if from back when I was initially doing theater, back when I first got out of college... I was really interested in this idea of having performers sort of interact with and create their own environment. Mm -hmm. And the the tools to do it never quite seemed to materialize. And I didn't know enough about coding to build them myself. Right. So I, I would say what you said about that becoming a possibility now, a real possibility now, not, not this sort of pre-canned thing, but actual interaction that sounds really cool. And it's something that I've sort of been hoping for for a really long time. I, I think relative to that, if you want a good source of inspiration, if you do a search for ILM XLab, some videos came out in the last week of the way they work on their projects, whether it's from the initial story engagement to augmented reality environments they're creating, or even virtual reality environments they're creating to engage not only the users who will experience the story, but even their own creatives to help develop story. I think there's some amazing things going on and I'm most excited about augmented reality because I think 
that is the way you use that kind of technology that's most theatrical, that allows it to be about community and people. It doesn't isolate you the way I think virtual reality can. I mean, certainly there's community around virtual reality because you might be engaging with another person in that virtual space um, who's sharing that space with you. But augmented reality, because it combines the graphics with other people in your space, I think the kind of tool sets I've been playing with, with 3D, like I can imagine putting on a pair of AR glasses, say in Madison Square Garden when it's empty and being able to virtually project the set. So I see it in my glasses in front of me so I can understand like how this is gonna play and walk around the space and be able to walk around the set in that space and have other people in AR glasses sharing that experience with me so that we can be in the physical room together of Madison Square Garden, but designing the structure that's going in there together and talking about how it's going to work. And that is an application of the tool set I've been working with that I, I hope to see in my career. That's had not even occurred to me, but of, but of course, you're the smart one. <laughs> you, you, using augmented reality as a pre-production device, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's what I want. Uh, I, I'd like to see it myself, <laughs> uh, but, but you're the one that can actually make it happen. Okay, that's my goal. That's what I'm going to do. All right. If people want to learn more about you or about uh, Luminous FX and some of your work, where can they go and how can they get in touch with you? Um, my website, luminousfx.com, is kind of my portfolio site. I have a companion site called lfxstudio.com. That's where I post information about the workflow that I use on my shows, whether it's um, the WebGL 3D on the web tool set or even content management. Just it tries to describe and outline that workflow for people. I'm on Facebook and I'm also at Twitter at Luminux, L-U-M-I-N-U-X. Okay, we will post links to all of that. Thank you so much for making our first episode of the second season such a good one. Thank you, Jason. This has been really enjoyable. It's, you know, it's such an honor to have you on the show and just thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. <laughs>